If you haven't already noticed the change, I would like to draw your attention to the fact that Hurry Slowly is now an ad-free, listener-supported podcast. And I am relying on your contributions to continue to do this work. If you value the ideas offered by this podcast, I would invite you to make a one-time or an ongoing donation at hurryslowly.co slash donations. Anything that you can offer will be deeply appreciated. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly. Today, I'm speaking with Oliver Berkman. What if the thing that you consider to be your sort of biggest personal flaw or biggest thing you struggle with, like what if you thought about the prospect of, of that never going away, of that just being something that you have to sort of find a way to, to live with? Um, I think it's incredibly powerful because it really highlights the degree to which so many of us are making our sense of meaning in life dependent on becoming a different person than we actually are and some moment that's going to happen in the future when you're sort of transformed so utterly that you leave behind everything that you've come from. Oliver Berkman is my favorite modern philosopher on the topic of why humans are so obsessed with doing. For many years, he wrote a wonderful column for The Guardian called This Column Will Change Your Life. And I can confirm that some of those essays really did change my thinking in far-reaching ways. Oliver has written a handful of marvelous books, including The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, and Help, How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done. His most recent book, just out this past August, is 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I've already recommended this book, which I read in just under two days to dozens of people. It's deeply thoughtful, affecting, and the prose really reads like a dream. And that is not something that I normally say about books on time management. But of course, I wouldn't be having Oliver on Hurry Slowly for the second time if that's all that the book was about. 4,000 weeks is the average lifespan of a human. And the meaning of that precious span of time is the context in which Oliver is writing. 4,000 weeks is a deeply philosophical book about why we have such a hard time allowing ourselves to pay attention to and to be present with the things that really matter. Raising a child, being in an intimate relationship, launching that creative project that you've been thinking about for years. My sense is that the hardships of the past two years have made many of us realize that postponing meaning and putting off doing the things that matter most is something we're unwilling to procrastinate on any longer. And I think Oliver will be an excellent guide as we embark on this journey of refashioning how we spend our time. For context, you should know that this interview was originally recorded in front of a live Zoom audience on October 27th, 2021. All right, let's dive in. So the last time you were on this show, which was in January 2018, I believe, you were in the midst of writing this book. And many things have happened since then, including a global pandemic. I'm curious, how many weeks did it take you to write this book? And how many did you initially think that it would take? Oh, well, the second part of that is easy because um, I think I had a, I signed a contract to deliver in two years. 
which I think would probably have fallen around the time that I then talked to you, because I think it had already been two years since I sort of first had the had the germ of an idea for this book. So you can tell from that it took me probably what five years end to end, although it did become a father in the middle of that. So I think that is a fairly good uh, excuse for some of the delays. Um, I've I was definitely you know my uh, my editors and agent found it uh, very amusing to make remarks about how many weeks of my life it was taking me to complete this book but they were patient another another important uh, topic uh, so uh, in the end you know I, I think it needed that time I think I sort of had to change to write it um, and uh, have a few crises along the way so um, I don't think I can really claim that it should have been done uh, quicker <laughs> well, yeah, and getting into claims about how quickly a creative project should or should not go is, is definitely murky territory, I think. Um, as I was preparing for this interview, I was, you know, I've known you for a few years now. Um, I haven't seen you for, for many now as um, I moved upstate and insert global pandemic. But I was thinking about it, and I think that you and I have something unusual in common that I'm not sure that I share with anyone else, which is that we are both people who could be referred to as productivity or time management experts, but who would probably also be somewhat uncomfortable with that label. And in your book, you quote Richard Bach as saying that we teach best what we most need to learn, which is a sentiment I definitely agree with. And I think you're actually also the person who gifted me the wonderful expression, take my advice, I'm not using it. One thing I quite like about you is that you're not really interested in pretending mastery or expertise. That's not at all the tone that you're writing in. And so my question is sort of twofold. Um, what got you interested initially in writing about time management or productivity? And what makes you kind of intuitively want to sort of slip the collar of being called an expert or of inhabiting a posture of mastery? I mean, what got me interested was and about what got me into writing about it was just that an editor of mine at The Guardian, where I was on staff as a journalist, saw that I was always reading these books. And, you know, I would say reading these websites, but this was early on. So we probably only had the Internet on a single terminal in the corner of the newsroom, at least at the very beginning of this. Um, uh, you know, I was already just sort of vacuuming up this this stuff for my own interests and I was spotted doing it and uh and my editor thought she might as well um you know get some get some content out of out of this uh interest of mine in terms of not wanting to present myself as a uh as a sort of master of it all it's almost it's almost the opposite it's almost like as a sort of skeptical british uh person various other uh adjectives that are probably relevant like it was it was kind of strange enough and awkward enough to be writing about self-help in general at all uh the idea of doing that and also then adopting this sort of sincere position of um uh you know claiming to have my act together well it wouldn't have been sincere but a sort of earnest position of, of sort of uh, would have been totally anathema to me so I sort of backed into this thinking that the column in the Guardian was going to be mainly about sort of mocking 
charlatans in the world of self-help. And that was fun and it is fun. But very quickly, I realized that actually the biggest surprise was, was that there was a lot of value in this world. And it was more interesting to me to, um, to sort of try to persuade Guardian readers, who I imagined to be roughly similar to me in their sort of default scepticism, bordering on cynicism, to persuade them that there was something valuable in this genre, uh, despite all the sort of easy jokes that one could have at its expense. So ever since then, and coming more centrally into the questions of time and time management, ever since then, um, it it's more been that I've been writing from a position of kind of slight astonishment that there's so much to be thought about in this area and that I that I can't just adopt my sort of uh, default position of dismissing it all. Um, but that seems a long way off pretending that I've sort of got my life completely in working order or anything like that. And I think it would be also antithetical to the sort of thesis I'm trying to put forward in this book if I, if I claimed uh, perfection in, in any of it. So it would sort of there'd be a clash of on the substance as well as the fact that it would just be a a lie. (laughs) When I backed into uh, sort of the realm of, uh, you know, self-help and looking at productivity myself as well, but I think, and this is one thing that you get at in the book, in a way, you know, this project of productivity, this project of time management really is one of the, a real cause of, human suffering in this sort of modern human era, you know, and I think that is something that's really worth looking at. I'm curious if there was an event or an insight that really started to kind of unlock this time management riddle for you that allowed you to kind of step back and get perspective and say, you know, wow, like I really need to sort of step off of this hamster wheel of productivity. And I mean, knowing it in like a sort of an embodied way, you know, I think often we know things intellectually, like, you know, you know, okay, I'm too focused on productivity or I'm running myself into the ground, but there's something about like, it's not until that insight sort of descends from the head into the body that you feel this kind of deep sense of inner knowing that you can then really take action on something. For me, and this kind of carries through in this idea of mastery that we were just talking about, it was asking myself this question of, you know, what if I never complete my masterpiece, which is actually prompted by this astrology book that I happened to be reading at the time. And I could suddenly see how I was driven by this idea of like achieving some sort of intangible creative mastery that would be recognized by the outside world. And it was also obvious to me, well, you're never going to have the feeling of having completed your masterpiece because you always, you know, know more the end of the process of creating something. And so you move on to this next thing with new ideas about how to do it different or do you do it better, right? This idea of a masterpiece is sort of an illusion that only happens in, I don't know, some sort of retrospect perspective. Um, So that was my moment, but I'm curious if you had one yourself where there was that major shift in your attitude towards, you know, let's say the project of time management where that changed. It's a really interesting question and it's difficult one to answer because I was about to answer it and then you, I I, I thought I knew what I was going to say and then you sort of... um, you cautioned against a sort of purely intellectual epiphany or insight. And I think the way it goes for me is that I, I have, when I have sort of sudden moments, they are intellectual. Um, my intellect is like 200 miles out front of the rest of my self. And I, and I sort of grasp concepts and what's going on very, very 
quickly and then it's like an incredibly long slow process that is very much still ongoing to sort of catch up uh in a really in an embodied way so i write in the book it's the example that it's the true example that springs to mind of um sitting on a bench on a winter morning in um prospect park in brooklyn where i lived um and uh at the beginning of a weekday ordinary day uh, i had um even more kind of stuff that I was an unusually large amount of stuff that I felt like I had to get through by the end of the day and sort of scheming about what combination of time boxing and the Pomodoro technique and uh, and 90 minute work sprints was I was going to use today to sort of bust through this um this slightly unusually high amount of work that I was feeling even more anxious about than usual and just being struck in that moment by hang on like this is never going to work the 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 place that I think I'm going to get one day, like if, if I haven't got there so far, having been, you know, had the opportunity for my job to experiment with like a hundred different time management uh, techniques and none of them have delivered the emotional uh, payoff that I seem to be looking for here. Um, uh, you know, none of this is ever going to work. I'm never going to feel this kind of total serene control the capacity, the capability to sort of take on anything and everything. Uh, this was just a sort of brief moment. It was a real, very vivid thing, but it was sort of purely, uh, it was almost a sort of, not just intellectual, it was almost sort of mathematical, you know, sort of abstract in the extreme, this, this idea that like, oh, I'm trying to do something that's impossible because I am finite and the amount of things that I could feel mattered uh, all that I had to do is infinite. So it's just a given. Um, and I didn't articulate it that, that, uh, eloquently, if that, if that counted as eloquent uh, in the moment, but that was the sort of thing that unfolded. Um, and in terms of it becoming sort of embodied, that's sort of ever since. And to this day, right. I mean, I haven't, I am not completely over the fantasy of one day achieving this kind of perfect, time management and control and security and, and not having to make tough choices about time and not needing to disappoint anybody and not needing to put any ambitions on hold so that I can fulfill other ones. That's all still real. And it's a sort of process of feeling the discomfort associated with that and just sort of, I'd like a better phrase than leaning in to the discomfort, but that's sort of what I mean, sort of letting it permeate you, not sort of clenching in a full body way to sort of get rid of it and do all the things that follow from that which are you know distraction and a focus on getting lots and lots of tiny unimportant tasks done instead of the most important ones so um that sort of accommodating what that means is an ongoing process and since ultimately this must surely go as far as sort of confronting the fact of mortality itself uh, it's um you know which I certainly have not uh, a, a job, a task I certainly have not finished. I don't see any reason to believe that will come to an end. Um, so it's just sort of an ongoing process, but it came from a, an intellectual insight. Mm. Um, yeah. So I want to touch into the discomfort that you just referred to, as well as the, the finiteness or the finitude um, in a few moments. But before we get there, I want to um, come back to sort of talking about one of the topics that the book starts with, which is clock time. 
And I'm going to kind of back into my question in a sort of strange way, but I've been thinking recently about the phrase internalized capitalism, um, you know, which is an expression that I would say doesn't really have one clear and distinct meaning, but rather one that can be sort of interpreted in a variety of different ways. And that idea really came up for me in the book when you were talking about how so much of our anxiety about time is rooted in quite literally like the rise of clock time. And, you know, that over many, many decades, we developed this sort of internalized clock or an awareness of time that's really quite distinct from the natural world, from the seasons, from the sun rising and setting. And I find for myself that the level of internalization for me is really disturbingly high. Like I can remember in the past when I used to do um, therapy, I would be laying on the couch talking to my therapist and that, you know, I would say something like, we have about 12 minutes left now, right? And because I'd run out of things to say. <laughs> and it was always really accurate. And right. part of me, you know, wanted to be sort of proud of that. Like, look at my precision time awareness. But another part of me can see how toxic that awareness is, right? And to me, that's almost like this sort of picture perfect form of internalized capitalism, like that I'm always on the clock because I literally am the clock, you know, it's inside of me. Yeah. So I'm curious if you could talk more about this internalization of clock time and how it's changed how we experience time in general. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think your everything you say resonates a lot, right down to the strange capacity to know when you wake up in the middle of the night that it's 4.45 or something. You know, um, I'm actually getting worse at that, so maybe that's a good sign. Um, but uh, yeah, I think capitalism is a very important part of it. I think there are sort of even more deeply rooted human tendencies that capitalism kind of exploits and and uh, and instrumentalizes but yeah i guess i just you know i just think it's important and interesting to note that there are many many times in and places in in history and to a certain extent i think probably some cultures today where at a completely fundamental level to talk about time and to think about time in the way that we do would have would have struck people or would strike people as as sort of bizarre bizarre in this fundamental sense of like there's a separation that has been introduced so there's you and there's time and then if you internalize that there's a sort of separation that has been imported back into yourself right there's there's you and there's time time is something you use you can use it well or badly uh you can waste it you can find ways to save it uh and and, and all the rest of it and um I'm not suggesting that we can or ever should or could, you know, get rid of that way of thinking about time. It, it has given us, you know, huge proportions of what we value about uh, modern life. But if you'd have asked a early medieval peasant in Yorkshire, uh, in England, where I'm speaking from now, you know, if you'd, if you'd asked them the sort of questions that arose from that mindset, like, uh, you know, you feel too busy at the moment or um you know uh, are you are you do you think you'll have time to get through everything you need to do by the end of the week or something it's not that life moved more slowly although maybe in some sense it did it's that these questions don't make sense to um cultures that live primarily in what anthropologists call task orientation right where where the rhythms of the day the rhythms of life just emerge naturally from um the tasks that have to be done which are almost always very closely yoked to the to the natural world um so the example i always give you know is if you go to a 
a sort of um, small scale dairy farmer and say, like, I read in a productivity book that you should batch similar activities because then it's really efficient and you don't and you get them all out of the way. So why don't you like do all the milking of the cows for this year? in the next week, and then you won't have to go back to it. I mean, obviously, that's ridiculous, right? That's, that's, a, that's an example of just applying thought from one mindset to a, to a different one. Um, and it's hard to convey. It's probably one of the jobs of the whole of the book I wrote to try to convey, but I think there is a, it's possible to sort of feel oneself into this alternative way of relating to time maybe relating is the wrong word because it's not even that there are two things to relate right of just being in time or if you really want to go down the heidegger direction which probably not a great topic for uh a conversation but um you know uh of being time the idea that we just literally are time and that and that the separation is so non-existent that it doesn't even make sense to think of oneself and time as separate things and uh there's something important about that i mean i think it's often a more um expansive and fulfilling way to live i don't think it's the uh i don't think it's possible to spend one's entire life that way today but it's just very useful to remember that the the things we take totally for granted about thinking about time are are historically contingent to some extent, right? That there is this way, there is this other way. And I think almost all of us can sort of pinpoint times in life when we were in that mode, right? I mean, there are times when you just are sort of in the flow of time. Uh, if you've been the parent of a small child, there are <clears throat> many months, uh, to put it mildly, where things just have to be done when they have to be done. And there's no point trying to impose a schedule on it. Um, if you've been involved in or, or, or sort of helped somebody through uh, a, a sort of severe life crisis, that, that's also a time when you sort of often have this sense of just being in the flow appropriately. You're, you are where you are. There's no question about acting more efficiently or um, sort of setting up goals that you then have to try to work towards. You're just, you just are it. Um, lots of other experiences, sort of happy and sad uh that that have this quality and i think we can sort of do various things to remember to nurture that aspect of time my partner and i were recently talking about the expression you know time time's a wasting and i think i actually said it because i was waiting for her to get ready to take our dogs for a walk you know impatiently um and we were reflecting on how much we had heard expressions like that as children and You write in the book, I wanted to read this quote, um, the environmentalist and spiritual writer Charles Eisenstein recalls first sensing this basic wrongness in our use of time, this instrumental use that you are describing. Um, He remembers growing up amid material comfort in the 1970s America. Life I knew was supposed to be more joyful than this, more real, more meaningful. And the world was supposed to be more beautiful. We were not supposed to hate Mondays and live for the weekends and holidays. We were not supposed to have to raise our hands to be allowed to pee. We were not supposed to be kept indoors on a beautiful day, day after day. I'm curious if you could talk about this sort of uh, joyless urgency, to use another Marilyn Robinson quote that you use, that we are inculcated with from a really young age. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's important to say that I'm I'm not saying, I don't think Charles Eisenstein is saying, or Marilyn Robinson, that that any kind of instrumental use of time is automatically a bad thing. We all use time instrumentally every day. Uh, you use time to load the dishwasher because you clean dishes at the end, not because you necessarily are deeply enriched by the experience of, of loading the dishwasher. Uh, but yeah, an, an overinvestment in this kind of instrumental attitude, and especially, as Marilyn Robinson points out so eloquently, an overinvestment in this when the goals are somebody else's, and it's not clear who, not not your own, not those of people you love, but just sort of um, socially dictated goals that, that <clears throat> don't really resonate with you or that feel necessary in order to sort of keep a roof over your head or something, but don't feel like they, they touch sort of who you are. Um, overinvestment in that just kind of naturally. And I think rather obviously in a way has the effect of um, sapping the value and the meaning of from the present moment, because the whole focus that you locate the value of, of life um, in the future uh, which never arrives so you're always uh, you're always sort of leaning into the future and never and never getting to the place that you uh, that you want to be getting I think what really resonates in that Charles Eisenstein quote for me is this idea that um, even when you think very carefully about how you use your time <clears throat> I'm, that's the context in which I'm I'm using that quote even even for those of us who care a lot about this stuff and maybe geek out a bit on the various techniques and systems for 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 using time well there's something about this whole stance of using it well and of focusing in this way that means that even if you then get a lot of things done they're, they're not the right thing somehow you're you're dimly aware that there are better ways that you could be spending your time and not just because you live in a society that obliges you to do things you don't want to do. That's true and important, but, but that you could right now, right here, be doing something different with your time. And for some reason, you just never quite get around to those things. And so part of what I'm exploring in the book are the ways in which you sort of, we sort of go off, off, off the focus in this way through, through sort of bearing down on this question of how to use time well. Well, so one of the things that you talk about in the book is this, I think you call it the when I finally mindset, you know, when I finally get through this thing, you know, then I'll do the thing that is really meaningful, or then I'll do the thing that really matters to me, um, which was a concept that really resonated with me. I've certainly uh, carried that around with me um, for a long time while working on, you know, many different projects. Could you go a little more deeply into that? concept, which I think would be helpful for people in understanding um, a little bit more about what you were just describing. Yeah, totally. And I'd love to know where I got it from, because um, I was completely convinced that it came from Tara Brock. So when I was fact checking the book, I emailed her and um, she gave me a wonderful and very generous, eloquent reply saying all sorts of interesting things about this thing, but also denying that she had come up with the label, the when I finally mindset. So um, so I'm, it remains a mystery. Um, yeah, I think this is where it's important to sort of introduce what I think of as, as an important um, component of what I'm trying to say here, which is that a lot of the ways that we end up using time 
in a um, counterproductive way, I think serve that the reason we do it is not because we're just sort of irrational and, and weird, right? It's that they serve a purpose of emotional avoidance. They are a more comfortable way to be than what would be entailed by really facing the, the, the facts about our limited time and our limited control over how our time unfolds. So it's, it's sort of lovely in a way to be chasing this notion that next week or next month or next year, you're going to have um, your uh, life completely in working order and be a super productive uh, master of your time, because then, you know, you're sort of chasing this alluring perfection instead of having to sort of confront the reality of the inherent uh, sort of imperfections of um, of reality. So that's important because it sort of makes sense of the the the, the reasons why we end up um, doing all these things that I think would otherwise would otherwise not look uh, like like sensible ways to use time. That idea that like real life is going to begin at some time in the future, or you or you 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 know the, the things that you really care about, you're going to get to launch at some point when you're ready, or you have all the other stuff out of the way, happens on a very sort of micro level, on the day when you sort of get to your desk and say, okay, first of all, I'm going to get all my email out of the way, and then I'm going to have this expanse of time to focus on what I care about, and then happens on a life level where you say, you know. I can't right now, but maybe next year or in two years' time, I'll be able to really uh, focus on on this thing. And meanwhile, I just have to do all these 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 other things to to get ready to get into position to to do that. Um, and in both those cases, right, it's it's a bit dispiriting and a little bit depressing because you don't get to do the thing that that would mean the most to you right now. But it's really kind of comfortable in a troublesome way because it means you don't actually have to face the doing of that thing now which is going to bring you up against your limitations and and uh sort of trigger all sorts of anxieties and fears you get to tell yourself well that's for later when i'm uh, a perfectly competent person or when uh i've uh you know all sorts of different kind of when I finally is right. It could be anything, educational qualifications or getting married or uh, moving to a city that you plan to move to one day, a million different things. It sort of puts the difficult stuff away into the future. And that is a very sort of comforting thought for humans who um, would really like to have a sense of limitless control and mastery and certainty and security and, and, you know, can't have it by virtue of the human situation. So I think that's that's what I'm getting at there. Yeah. Well, and so to go a little bit more into what you're saying about wanting that control and sort of the emotional avoidance of imperfection, it seems to me what you're saying is that let's take a, a creative project as an example. You know, let's say I want to write a novel. Um, And that's the thing that I keep putting off. And in doing that, if I understand you correctly, it means that I can avoid the disillusionment that will inevitably occur when I begin this, this writing project, right? That I have this vision of how perfect and amazing the final product will be. But then once I begin, I realize, oh, in fact, it's much more difficult and 
you know, maybe my vision of what it is shifts and, you know, a million different things could happen, right? But the idea is that as soon as I actually undertake that thing, whether it's a novel or whether it's a a love relationship that I've been fantasizing, then I'll begin to become aware of the actual difficulties of sort of pursuing or being in the flow of that thing. And I'll be kind of disillusioned. Would you say, is that sort of correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think there is a sort of inherent, at at the end of the day, you know, we are, as humans, we're two things. We are, we are sort of radically finite and material and limited in, in what we can do. And then we are capable of conceiving of infinity and perfection and, and sort of limitless, uh, limitless levels of achievement, limitless numbers of projects and all the rest of it. So it sort of follows from that by definition that anything you, um, anything you bring into the world is, uh, is only going to be a sort of, uh, an imperfect version of the things that you can, that you can fantasize about again, both in terms of quality, but also in terms of the sort of trade-offs of, of a limited quantity of time, right? Um, as long as it's all in the future and I'm not actually doing anything, I can imagine being an incredibly present and committed uh, parent and also spending six months a year on uh, long-term meditation retreats. You know, that's, that's fine in my mind. Where it's not fine is in reality because there are certain choices to be made uh, between those incommensurate goals. And so, yeah, either in that sense or just in the sense that you can always envision everything being perfect and, and you can't, nobody can actually make it perfect. Um, there's an inherent kind of sadness or loss um, about, about anything being created. And that's one kind of the cause, cause of procrastination, I think, right? If you're always telling yourself one day, like when my time comes, I'm going to do this incredibly cool thing that matters but not for now. Often that is driven by the, the, the sort of desire to not have it enter the world uh, in a sort of imperfect, uh, almost kind of degraded way. Um, I've seen the, there's a philosopher uh, called Kostika Bradatan who's written about this, talking about it in the, in, in uh, the context of uh, Gnostic Christianity. And I'm going to be giving a very oversimplified overview of what, that is but basically they sort of believe that creation was a mistake somehow right and that um and that anything that uh adopts material form is somehow a failure as compared to its sort of divine uh manifestation or potential and there's something really interesting in that and sort of true but if you want to create things you're going to have to find a way to uh live with it instead of uh instead of avoid it You talk about the paradox of limitation in the book, and you write, quote, the more you try to manage your time with the goal of achieving a feeling of total control and freedom from the inevitable constraints of being human, the more stressful, empty, and frustrating life gets. But the more you confront the facts of finitude instead and work with them rather than against them, the more productive, meaningful, and joyful life becomes. Could you talk to me about how rejecting our own finitude leads us to postpone doing or appreciating the things that truly give our lives meaning? Yeah, I think in the the sort of simple answer to that is just that if you dedicate your life to trying to sort of get outside of the reality of your 
situation as a human, if you dedicate it to sort of trying to get into a position where, you know, to feed this through a sort of productivity lens, it would be you're capable of doing everything. You never need to disappoint anybody. Um, you can handle every new request that comes your way or implement every ambition that might occur to you. Um, if that's what you're focused on, then you're obviously not focused on sort of pouring your finite time and attention and stamina into a handful of things that really that really count. There's also this more kind of uh, specific uh, perverse issue with with efficiency, right? That if 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 the way you're trying to achieve this uh, escape from finitude is by becoming more and more efficient or optimized, as lots of people would say today then there are reasons why that actually leads to a busier and less meaningful life. And I tried to sketch some of these out in the book, right? If you're all else being equal, if you make a system, including a person's working life, you know, more efficient, what happens is that um, the, the system just fills with more and more, um, more and more tasks and all else being equal, they're going to be more and more sort of junk tasks because you're getting rid of the filters that you ought to be putting down and saying, well, does this matter enough uh, to, to take it on board? Um, so eventually you become, in the words of uh, a management, a, a workplace consultant, Jim Benson, who I quote in the book, you become uh, uh, a bottomless or a limitless reservoir for other people's uh, expectations. Um, you, just, you just become a system that's capable of taking on more and more and more and more and more, feeling busier and busier and busier and sort of drifting as a result, away from your own priorities. And, you know, we have to do that to some extent. I never want anyone to interpret what I'm saying or writing about as something that is relevant only to people who have a sort of perfect autonomy over their, over their work. Um, but even if you have very little autonomy over your work, you, you still have to inevitably make certain choices um, if you're being faced with an impossible demand, impossible number of demands, you're not going to do them all because... Uh, that's what impossible means. So there is still this kind of, um, there is still this sort of level of consciousness of your situation to be achieved, which I think is really, uh, is really beneficial, even even when your capacities for changing your external circumstances are limited by your situation. Well, and as you said earlier, you know, making those choices is uncomfortable. And I think so much of your book is about holding that discomfort. And, you know, as I'm hearing what you were saying, I think, you know, we live in this kind of paradoxical environment where we are humans with a finite capacity, limited energy, and you know, only so many hours in the day, but the digital tools that we use all the time, like allow this infinite access so our inboxes, you know, your inbox never says like, actually, Oliver's inbox is full to the capacity of requests he's equipped to deal with. Like, he can't receive your message at this time, right? That doesn't happen. It's just the more the merrier. There's no limits. So come on in. <laughs> um, and so we're constantly up against this paradox of what we can do and sort of what these apps and tools that we use will allow us to think that we can do. Um, and in the book, you write what's needed in such situations I gradually came to understand as a kind of anti-skill, not the counterproductive strategy of trying to make yourself more efficient, but rather a willingness to resist such urges, to learn to stay with the anxiety of feeling overwhelmed, of not being on top of everything without automatically responding by trying to fit more in. 
To approach your days in this fashion means instead of clearing the decks, declining to clear the decks. Focusing instead on what's truly of greatest consequence while tolerating the discomfort of knowing that as you do so, the decks will be filling up further with emails and errands and other to-dos, many of which you may never get around to at all. And so there's really this deep discomfort about focusing on the things that have meaning. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I think it is, again, baked into our situation that doing anything means waving goodbye to the possibility of doing other things. Committing to anything or anyone means waving goodbye to the possibility, at least for that time, of committing to something else in someone else instead. Um, And it is uncomfortable. But there is something very liberating, I think, about the fact that... um, the fact that it's universal, right? And the fact that um, nobody gets to uh, have things go differently than, than that. And, and that it is not something, you know, your inability to do all the things that you thought you ought to do or wanted to do to the standard that you wanted to do them is not because you haven't found enough self-discipline yet or you're a bad person or um, you haven't read the the book with the time management system in it yet that is going to change everything. It's because you are a human being. Um, And I think that that makes the discomfort uh, a lot easier to bear. Um, There's a quote that I use at the beginning of the book from Charlotte Jocko Beck, the American Zen Buddhist teacher who, um, who writes uh, and likes to say, I think um, what makes it unbearable is your mistaken belief that it can be cured. The sort of brilliant general thought that um, we make our problems much much worse by um, imagining that we shouldn't that, that there must that there must be a way to not have them, uh, and that we're therefore you know failing in a much bigger way through not having found that that solution. And there's a certain amount of relaxation and relief in realizing that these problems are just sort of built into to where we're at. And then the other thing I will say, I think it's important to say, we are on some level talking about confronting mortality and going through incredibly difficult decisions in life and being in incredibly difficult situations. But a lot of the time, I am amazed by what sort of tiny level of discomfort will suddenly make it seem appealing to me to blow off my plan to do something important and creative for the next two hours or something, right? It's like on a day-to-day basis, there is a role for saying like, um, just sort of pull your socks up as we would say in England. I don't know if that has international reach. And and like you can't, talking about levels of discomfort that you can pretty easily push through and that you find very swiftly sort of evaporate once you, once you get engrossed in the, in the project. So I don't want to claim that that's a universal thing we're talking about here, but a lot of the time, maybe in my experience anyway, but you know, a lot of the time, uh, the, the first little roadblock that you encounter in, in some difficult creative project is enough to have me thinking that I'd rather spend the next several hours doing something else instead. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, I really like the insight of um, Cal Newport, uh, who, whose work I'm sure you and many people listening will be familiar with, that um, the thing that people call writer's block, this is an example from writing, obviously, but is, is just the experience of writing. Like, that's what it feels like to write. 
um, uh, that you that it's hard and you don't know what what sentence to write next. I mean, yeah, right. That, that's writing, and it and it's and it's hard and it matters and the stakes are high for you if you're a, someone who wants to write well. So of course, it's kind of got all these emotional uh, issues. And if you're lucky, maybe you know, ten percent of the time you're in a wonderful flow state instead. But there's huge amount of liberation in just not really expecting that it's all going to be totally delightful plain sailing uh, and then deeming yourself to have some terrible, terrible flaw when it turns out to be uh, hard. I love that uh, explanation of writer's block. That's really wonderful. (laughs) I was researching that Charlotte Joko Beck uh, quote that you mentioned because I enjoyed it so much and was also so disturbed by it um, as I was preparing for our interview and I came upon the Guardian piece that you had written about it. And I noticed that in that piece, you also recommended a book called uh, Already Free by the psychotherapist Bruce Tift. And you wrote that that book suggests asking yourself what it might be like to continue living with your biggest problems until the end of your life, which was a long way from a sort of delightful, smooth sailing as I was contemplating that idea of, you know, not, that's right, the complete opposite end of the spectrum from optimization to just say, wow, these are, these are the problems that I'm dealing with and they may be present forever. Could you talk a little bit more about that concept, which I think is, um, you know, there is a lot of Buddhism in, in your book that, that sort of bubbles up. Yeah, no, I, and I love that quote and I love um, Bruce Tift's work in general. And there's another quote from him that I use twice in the, in my book, because it, it, it so gets at this experience that we feel of being sort of not wanting to experience what it's like to be constrained by reality and, and how many things we do to try to find an escape from it. Um, but this idea, uh, like, what if the thing that you consider to be your sort of biggest personal flaw or biggest thing you struggle with, like what if you thought about the prospect of, of that never going away, of that just being something that you have to sort of find a way to, to live with? Um, I think it's incredibly powerful because it really highlights the degree to which so many of us are, uh, you know, making our sense of meaning in life uh dependent on becoming a different person than we actually are and some moment that's going to happen in the future when you're sort of transformed so utterly that you leave behind everything that you've come from which makes no sense anyway right because it would be your biography up to that point that would have led you to that to that stage anyway there's a essay on the website called the mockingbird by a christian writer called i think stephanie phillips which puts all this through a christian lens but the headline is something like what if i never change which I think is really uh, as, as another way of thinking about it. And Bruce Tift has said in an interview, I love this uh, quote, I can't remember where he said it, but that um, he no longer experiences any problems in his marriage at all, but only because he's stopped defining the experience of emotional disturbance as a problem. He's just like, that's going to happen, right? Like my spouse is going to wind me up and press my buttons and, and like bring up stuff from my childhood. And like, that is going to happen. Now you may, it is also possible to be in a terrible toxic relationship that you should get out of. Absolutely. But like, that's just the baseline for sort of getting close to another person. And you don't need to define that as something 
that, uh, you know, until it goes away, real life hasn't begun. So I think that's a really, um, all of these things are just sort of ways into the same, the same idea, like life brings problems and it brings problems in an unequally distributed way. And that's all true and incredibly important, but like, don't make it worse if you can avoid it by imagining that one day you're going to break through to the time where you don't have any problems at all, because it's not going to happen. And I don't think you would want it to actually, if you think about it. (laughs) Well, maybe now is a good point to come back to patience, which you mentioned at the beginning. You know, we talked about how you teach best what you most need to learn and uh, hurry slowly is certainly such a project for me. I would definitely not say that patience is my greatest virtue, and I doubt any of my friends would either. Um, (laughs) I'm curious if you could talk to me about patience as a form of power, which you talk about towards the end of the book and what what it can offer us. I've been really influenced in this by the work of an art historian at Harvard University called Jennifer Roberts, who, uh, well, the there's a really sort of interesting headline about about her is that she makes all her incoming students do this exercise that I then also did in the book where you have to um, choose a painting or a sculpture and go and look at it for three hours straight, uh, which she knows is a sort of extraordinary amount of time and leaves people feeling very uncomfortable and jumpy and antsy. But her point is that you see things on the other side of that, that um, discomfort that you hadn't seen. And I did this with a painting. Uh, I went to interview her and I went, did a painting in the Harvard art. It's called the Harvard art museums uh, by uh, Degas, a painting there. And it's literally true, right? It's not like, it isn't, I'm not talking metaphorically. Like you see things that you did not see uh, if you look at a painting for, for that kind of time. She's making the point that, you know, certainly historically patience feels like this kind of, uh, very passive kind of uh, virtue. It's the kind of thing that you can certainly imagine in the past being urged on people who lack power in society as a way of sort of reconciling themselves to the fact that they that they lack power. So you could imagine it being a, a sort of um, uh, as I think it was seen as a virtue of the whole in the whole sort of ethos of Victorian. Uh, the sort of Victorian housewife, right? Like you don't get to do the interesting, meaningful things in the public sphere. So you have to cultivate patience uh, at home. But as Jennifer Roberts points out, the more society speeds up, the more that we're everything that's dictating to us is dictating a faster pace and instantaneous um, action and accomplishment. um, It becomes a kind of subversive form of resistance, right? To be able to not go along with that, um, level of of speed to be able to um give something the time that it takes even though everything around you is is um is pushing you to hurry um and she was came up with this exercise as a sort of intervention for her students because she saw that technology the sort of hyper competitive harvard atmosphere all of this was pushing them to do everything really really fast and that her responsibilities as a teacher had to now include sort of trying to influence the pace at which they they did their their work for her, not just not just sort of um, grading the results. So, yeah, it's uncomfortable. Everything um, uh, speaks in favour of of going faster and faster. But this ability to sort of let the discomfort of not hurrying uh, 
coexist with, you know, just slowing down and giving things the time that they need, I think is totally a form of, 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 uh, power. And it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's really counterintuitive and it doesn't feel good at first. And I think one criticism I have of all the kind of slow travel and slow food and all those kind of slow movements is a constant implication that if you're feeling really stressed and anxious and you've got lots to do, like so many of us, and you stop for an hour or two and you slow down, that this is going to feel lovely. Of course, it's not going to feel lovely. It's going to feel at first, I think, uh, really unpleasant because the flywheel is racing and the, and the ethos of producing and shipping product and shipping product is so sort of entrenched that when you stop and start doing things slowly, start reading a novel at the speed a novel requires and sort of almost dictates. Um, like again, like with the writer's block example, like I think it's really fulfilling in the long run, but to expect it to feel good for people like us in this culture is unrealistic. I think to expect you to feel good at first anyway. Maybe not for the people uh, in this community right now, but, um, <laughs> but for people in general. I think we're I think I think we're all struggling with it. And I really like thinking about patience as a sort of subversive rebel quality. It certainly makes it a little bit more more appealing to me. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> My last question for you, this season of the podcast is about focusing on this theme of how do we begin again, you know, after everything that we've reflected on and synthesized during the pandemic and are still synthesizing. If you could share one question related to beginning again that you think would be fruitful for listeners to meditate on, what would it be? I'm going to adapt a question that I mention in the book and that I attribute uh, to um, that is attributed to uh, James Hollis, a Jungian psychotherapist. Um, you might've heard me talk about this before because I talk about it whenever I possibly can. Uh, but I think it's incredibly powerful. And he suggests that we ask of major life decisions and of the ways that we're using our time. Does this path enlarge me or diminish me? And I think um, you could adapt that to the sort of post-pandemic moment by saying, like, what would be the enlarging next step to take in work, in life, in anything else? What I really have always loved about this language is just the fact that it, um, uh, it gets around questions about how to find happiness, because A, what is happiness, and B, we're terrible at predicting the things that are going to make us happy. And it refocuses on this intuitive sense that I think almost all of us have when we're broadly on a path of growth or not. And a creative project, certainly a relationship, can be really not delightful at certain times. And, and that uh, negative emotion can be, you know, it's usually fairly easy to tell whether that is the kind of negativity that is part of a path of growth or the kind of negativity that means you should, like, get the hell out of that situation as soon as you possibly can. And it's really important to be able to discern those two and to be able to go with things that are in the direction of growth and creativity and generativity, even when they don't feel um, really great in the moment and not to be totally sort of thrown off course by, by the idea that you shouldn't be feeling 
those feelings. Um, so that sort of sense of like, where is the, where is the opportunity for enlargement? Where is the, where is the sort of generativity? Where's the growth, the juice, you know, I think any, any version of these words that work for you, um, that's the thing that I think, you know, deep down with a little bit of introspection, even when people feel like they're very confused about what direction to go in in life, they, they do find that they can answer the question when it's phrased that way. Oliver originally wrote about that question from James Hollis that he just asked in his Guardian column. And I have to say that I have been thinking about it, and I've been using it, and I've been sharing it with others ever since I read about it. He's so right that we just do have an intuitive sense of the answer to that question. We always know if something, a decision, a path is going to diminish us or make us feel smaller or if it's going to enlarge us or help us expand and grow. I feel like I've been carrying around this question as a gift from Oliver for some time now and I can confidently second his conviction that it's an excellent compass for making decisions. I hope it serves you well as you begin to walk down a new path. This podcast is produced by Matt Susich with additional audio fine-tuning from Devin Craig Johnson, who also composed our lovely theme song. If you'd like to stay in touch with me, you can sign up for my newsletter at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. If you'd like to make a contribution to this podcast which I would deeply appreciate, you can visit hurryslowly.co slash donations. As always, thank you so much for listening and remember to take your time. Mm-hmm.